You may be seated. Uh, if you've never been here before, if this is your first time, I know there are some unfamiliar faces to me, and I know that uh, there are churches in the community who are not having service this morning, but I am Pastor Colby. Uh, I am the outreach slash recovery pastor. Um, and so some would say I'm the lead pastor. I don't know. Uh, that's a joke. You're supposed to laugh. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm not Pastor Mike. He is out this morning. And so I am filling in for him. And so I am not the regular Joe up here. Uh, so, yeah. And also, if this thing looks weird on me, um, it's not fitted for my head. Pastor Mike's head's a little big. So, yeah, this is, yeah, yeah, don't tell him that. Anyway, if you will, turn your Bibles with me, uh, with me this morning to Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 335 this morning, and we're going to get to it in just a bit. I have some introductory remarks and preliminary remarks to make uh, about our topic this morning. And also, I think I forgot, but if there are any kids, you are welcome to go to Amy, who is probably out in the hallway, walking down the hallway, uh, going to Children's Church. Um, so yeah, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35, and we'll get to it in just a moment, but I want to prod your, your brain for just a moment this morning. I want to uh, get you thinking, and this morning's message revolves around purpose. So if I was to ask you in a, in, um, a one-on-one setting, um, what's your purpose in life? How would you answer this question? I, I believe many of your answers would be different. Because I think we get, I think we get purpose and, and calling kind of confused. You see, a lot of times we think our purpose is to, to help the needy or, or to help out the orphan or the widow. While those are, so to say, good purposes, but let's not confuse our purposes versus our calling. Our calling are oftentimes dependent on our gifts, our talents, and our abilities that the Lord God gives us. But our purpose stays constant. It stays rooted in the one who gives us the purpose. Who is the purpose maker? The author of our purpose. So if I was to ask you what was your purpose, what would you say? The search for purpose in life has puzzled many since the beginning of time. From Muhammad to Buddha to Oprah to Joel Osteen. to the monks. But as Christians, what does the Lord have to say about our purpose? As disciples of Jesus Christ, what is our purpose? The Westminster Catechism, and I know we're Wesleyans, but just hang on just a moment. The Westminster Catechism responds to the question, what is the chief end of man? With the question, to glorify God. This is in their opening statements in their doctrinal discipline book or whatever you want to call it. We have different names depending on different denominations. So where do we see that our purpose is to glorify God taught in the Bible? We see it in many, many places. But before I give two examples here, I brought my other Bible, my Wesleyan discipline. I want to read to you in question of what is God's purpose for humanity. 
And if you want to go home in your Wesleyan discipline, I have the 2016 version. I don't know if there's an updated version yet. Uh, I have not checked. But this is in paragraph 220 under the heading, God's Purpose for Humanity. And it says, We believe that the two great commandments which, which require us to love the Lord our God with all the heart and our neighbors as ourselves summarize the divine law as it is revealed in the scriptures. They are the perfect measure and norm of human duty, both for the ordering and directing of families and nations and all other social bodies, and for the and for individual acts by which we are required to acknowledge God as our only supreme ruler, and all persons as created by him, equal in all natural rights. Therefore, all persons should so order all their individual, social, and political acts as to give to God entire and absolute obedience, and to assure to all the enjoyment of every natural right, as well as to promote the fulfillment of each in the possession and exercise of such rights. So I don't know if you really understood that there, but again, even in the Wesleyan discipline, it revolves around giving God the glory. That is our ultimate and supreme purpose here in our lives on earth. And Isaiah, a prominent uh, piece of scripture in regards to purpose, Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7 states, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone whom I created for my glory, everyone I formed and made, God tells us that he formed and made us as his humans, or as, us as humans for his glory. In the next, 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So the Bible clearly tells us that God created us for his glory, or created us to glorify him, and we are commanded to glorify him in everything that we do. But the phrase, to, to glorify God, can be somewhat nebulous, can be somewhat foggy and hazy and, and a little confusing. What does it mean to glorify something? We glorify a lot of things. Well, John Piper says, to glorify something means feeling and thinking and acting in ways that reflect the greatness of the object or person being beheld or remembered. We glorify things that we enjoy or hold in high esteem. What are some examples? Well, let's take one. A quarterback, right? We are awed by the passing proudness of our favorite professional quarterback. And what do we do? We study him, right? Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Patrick Mahomes, Trevor Lawrence, you name it. I don't know who your quarterback is. I'm not going to tell you mine because then you might throw uh, paper balls at me. So uh, I'm going to keep that in my pocket. But we study them, right? We memorize their stats. We watch them day in and day out, Sunday, Sunday to Sunday. We get excited about their play calling and passing abilities, whether a pocket passer or, or they're Lamar Jackson and they can just run and run and run and nobody can tackle him. We laud him and, and his skills to others. We talk about how great he is at playing football. And in essence, we are glorifying the quarterback. 
Maybe that doesn't hit you well. So maybe it's an art piece. We are moved by seeing an, an exquisite classical piece of art, such as the Mona Lisa. And what do we do? We are mesmerized by the painter's gifts to so masterfully capture and portray the object or objects of the painting. We tell others about the painting's greatness and hold the artist in high esteem, extolling, extolling his or her impeccable work to others. In essence, we glorify the painter. Lastly, love. We fall in love with another person, and what do we do? We became enamored with their character, with their intellect, with their wit and humor, with their handsomeness or their beauty. And what is our response to this? We tell others about how wonderful this person is, how he or she is the best thing that has ever happened to us. In essence, we glorify our newfound lover, our sweetheart, our forever friend, our best friend, our soulmate. Let me tell you, if you ever have had some of my wife's cooking, you know I glorify my wife's cooking. I love my wife's cooking. And I can't say the opposite. I can't say I don't love it, because then I would get in trouble. So... So what does it mean to glorify God? Again, John Piper says, to glorify God means to feel, think, and act in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of his attributes and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. So again, I ask you the question, what is your purpose in life? In your mind, your answer now is most likely, well, Colby, it's to glorify God. We can go home now. We're good to go. And you're correct. But how do we get to that point? Because you see, if our purpose is to glorify God, then our purpose is to reflect and follow Jesus. The sinless man, who's in essence in everything that we need to be. We look to him. We strive to be like him in every way. The reason that purpose in life has puzzled so many for so long is that too many have started at the wrong starting point. Think about it. When people are asked about the purpose of their life, they typically ask self-centered questions like, what do I want to be when I grow up? What should I do with my life? What are my dreams, my goals, and my ambitions? Right? We start asking these questions from the time of third grade. I can remember more than half of my, I guess, third grade education was centered around what do I want to be when I grow up? Very self-centered. And as a result, the market is flooded with every kind of self-help book, Christian or otherwise, trying to answer the same question. Purpose. What is it? How do we fulfill it? Because if we don't have it, we're like a hot air balloon floating aimlessly. They say things like consider your dreams, clarify your values, set your goals, figure out what you're good for and go for it. And if you can believe it, then you sure can achieve it. 
I did a quick search on the internet, and one site guaranteed me how to discover your life's purpose in about 20 minutes. Well, sign me up, buddy. I'll give you my $35. Now, these recommendations, surely they can help. They can lead to success. I'm not denying that. I keep this in my pocket. I don't tell this often, but my first ever Christian book that I ever read was Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now. And I'm not saying that to mock him or to criticize him. But being successful and fulfilling your purpose in life are not the same thing. They're not. You can reach your goals and you can achieve your objectives. You can accomplish your aim and still miss your purpose. In fact, you may own it all and have nothing to show for it. You may be extremely successful and yet exceptionally miserable at the same exact time. Why is that? You have no purpose. Nothing's fulfilling you. You, have, you may have reached the top of your ladder of success only to find that your ladder has been placed against the wrong wall the whole time. It's been on faulty foundation. You've been on sinking sand. And folks, I believe that that fundamental problem for a while now has crept into American Christianity and it goes something like this. Lord, I want to do what I want be what I want, have what I want, and I want you to bless it. I want to be what I want, have what I want, and do what I want, and I want you to bless it. We use, we use cute and clever cliches like, what would Jesus do? When what we really mean is, Lord, I want what I want, when I want it, and now bless it. Because again, I am the author of my own life. I am the Lord of my life, and I determine my purpose, but you're going to bless it. See, this approach starts at the back end rather than the up front. So instead of asking, what would Jesus do, how about adopting a purpose statement that asks, what did Jesus do? And more succinctly, what does Jesus want me to do? I want us to start this new season here. I know that we're going to the new year. Uh, Christmas is yesterday. The new year's on the horizon here. I want to start on this note because it is fundamentally important to understand that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we cannot understand God's purpose for our life by starting with a focus on ourselves. You see, we exist only because God wills that we exist. And the moment that you get that through your brain, life will be much simpler. We were made by God and for God, and until we know that deep inside, life will never make sense. Acts 17, 28 says, For it is in him that we live and move and have our being. It is only through a relationship with Jesus that we can discover who we are, what we are, why we are, and what is the meaning, the significance, and the purpose of our life. Sir, you may have success. You may have accomplishments in life, but without a relationship with Jesus, your life will lack meaning. It will lack purpose. Why is that? Because your life 
is based on what you wanna do. Every second of your life is based on what can I do to satisfy my desires, to gratify myself, to itch that spot on my back. Instead of what God wants me to do, or what God wants to do in and through you. So again, as we read our passage this morning, all that was introductory, and that was long. <laughs> but as we read our passage this morning, keep that in mind. I want you to pay particularly close attention. God has sent a messenger here this morning, John the Baptist, a precursor of Jesus to tell the people they were heading in the wrong direction. He told them that their self-reliance and their self-sufficiency were keeping them from God. He told them that they were ignoring God in their life. And though many of them seemed to be doing all the right things, all the good things, the religious things, they were missing out on God's purpose for their lives. John told them that they needed to turn away from their independent lifestyle with God and come under his direction and leadership. He told them that they were lost and getting more lost with each and every day. He told them that they needed to start over, to come clean so that they could, so that they could get clean. He was telling them that they needed to stop trying to fit God into their life and their lifestyle and start fitting their lifestyle and life into God's. So let us listen to what Luke has to say here in our passage this morning. And really, I'm focusing on verses 29 and 30. I'm going to read the whole pericope this morning just for the sake of, of context. Beginning in verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who was to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come, they said, John... They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their, light, their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messenger had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. When then did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. 
To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you do not dance. We sang a dirge, and you do not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread or drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Now let me explain to you a little bit what's going on here. You see, God has sent John the Baptist to prepare people to come into a relationship with him in Jesus Christ. So John went out baptizing people. The Bible tells us that he went to all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It says in Luke here, actually in chapter 3, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. You see, now, this baptism of repentance was key to prepare them for God's purpose in their lives. Why is that? It's significant because it comes down to motive, to attitude, to obedience, and ultimately to purpose. You see, baptism is associated with death to our old way of life. Is it an outward symbol or expression of an inward change of heart? It's actually Romans chapter 6, verse 4 that says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into the death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So baptism symbolizes death. But baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins symbolizes that I am not only dying to myself, but that I'm also turning away from my old ways. Ephesians 4.22 says, You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by the deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When we acknowledge that God's way is right in our life, this is called repentance. It's a mental shift which literally means to change one's mind. You repent when you change the way you think by adopting how God thinks about you and the things that you do. You begin to take on God's perspective and outlook on life. You see, the Pharisees and the, the experts in the law, the religious types were unwilling to do this. They wanted God in their life, but only on their terms. They wanted to dictate to God how they wanted him to live and move and have his being. They were unwilling to turn from what they wanted to follow and what the Lord wanted. And that, my friends, is the big difference between being just a churchgoer and a disciple of Jesus Christ. You see, the church today has, not the invisible church, but the American church really has done a great disservice. We have said, come to church, accept Jesus, and continue living how you've been living. But that's not what Jesus said. 
He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. As a result, we don't see people's lives significantly different before and after they give their lives to Christ. Why? Why is that? Because we have downplayed this baptism that John is referring to. And that Paul so well says in Galatians 2.20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now this death of self, this repentance, this crucifixion with Christ is not some sour, grim, self-effacing, I'm just a lowly, no good follower of Jesus thing. No, it's all about coming under God's authority, his direction, his leadership, and purpose for our lives. It's not about fitting God into who I am and what I want, but it's following Jesus into who and what he wants me to be. It's allowing the Holy Spirit to make us new from the inside out. In Luke chapter 7, verse 9, just a couple of verses earlier, we witness a centurion say, I come under your authority. All you have to do is say the word and it is done. Do you remember what Jesus' response to that was? Jesus said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. I hear people all the, I hear people all the time say, I just need more faith. As if faith was a commodity to even acquire. This great faith that Jesus said the centurion had was simply a matter of who was in charge. In essence, the centurion simply said, Lord, you direct and I'll follow. He gave up authority to the Lord. He said, I'll follow you. And throughout the Bible, we see this important truth over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit releases his power the moment you acknowledge that God's way is right and you repent. In other words, Jesus is in charge of your life. You're no longer the Lord of your own life, but Jesus is. God is, call, God is the one calling the shots, and you have relinquished what you want to what he says to do. That was a major difference between the Pharisees and the disciples. Because the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves. But they had not been bad because they had not been baptized by John. In other words, they would not repent and, re and they rejected coming under his authority and purpose for their life. Now, as disciples of Jesus Christ, which God desires all of us to grow in. There are two key areas we need to come to grips with in regards to either finding or fulfilling our purpose. And I'll close with these two things here. The first is we must be committed to coming under God's authority. He is the authority. His word is our authority. Many, religion, or many religious church people today are like the Pharisees and experts in the law. 
They reject God's purpose for their lives. They let God in just enough to comfort and help them, but not enough to cause them to change. You see, God's ultimate purpose for our lives is, it's not comfort. It's not an easy life. It's not climbing the ladder of success. But it's character development. It's sanctification. It's, it's growing in Christ. It's becoming perfect. Like our Father in heaven is perfect. Whether you take that in a literal or metaphorical sense. He wants us to grow spiritually and become like Christ. Now, becoming like Christ does not mean losing our personality or or becoming some mindless clone, just walking around like a robot. No, God created us uniquely. Christ-likeness is all about transforming our character, becoming like Christ. It's about becoming holy, set apart, so that we can fulfill our purpose in glorifying God through a lifelong process of sanctification. Throughout the New Testament, we see this kind of character that God wants to produce in us. And every time we forget that character is one of God's major purposes for our lives, we will will become frustrated by our circumstances. You'll say things like, why is this happening to me? Or why am I having such a difficult time? Or this isn't fair. It is the Holy Spirit's job to produce Christ-likeness in you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 tells us, And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing, with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And the last thing I want to close with is we must be committed to following God's direction. So first, we must come under his authority. The second thing is we must follow his direction. God uses his word, his people, and circumstances to mold us. All three are indispensable for the process of sanctification. God's word provides the truth we need to grow. God's people provide the support, the support we need to, to grow, and the circumstances provide the environment we need to grow in. God wants us to grow. His goal is for us to be mature and to develop the characteristics of his son, Jesus Christ. But sadly, many Christians grow older, but they never grow up. They are stuck in a perpetual infancy. That might be you this morning. You've been in church for 50, 60, 70 years, but you're no more mature than you were 30 years ago. You've been stuck in a perpetual infancy. You've grown older, but you haven't grown up. Why? I don't know the exact reason, but maybe one reason is because like the Pharisees and experts in the law, they too rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not repented 
You see, growth is not automatic. It takes intentionality. It takes an intentional commitment. You must want to grow. You must desire, decide, and make an effort to grow. Discipleship is all about the process of becoming like Christ. And that always begins with a decision of self-denial and obedience. And actually, self-denial or denial is is, is the very first lesson in our Celebrate Recovery. Now, in order to have this character transformation, we need to know who and what we're aiming for. Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. When the Lord speaks, things happen. Things happen to us. Things happen to the people around us. Things happen to the circumstances around us. The Bible is far more than a doctoral guidebook. God's word generates life. It creates faith. It produces change. It frightens the devil. It causes miracles. It heals hurts. It builds character. It transforms circumstances. It imparts joy. It gives strength. It overcomes adversity. It defeats temptation. It infuses hope. It releases power. It cleanses the mind. It renews the soul. It opens the mind. It gives life to the spirit and guarantees our future forever. It is spiritual nourishment, and you must have it to fulfill your purpose. But in order for it to accomplish, to, for it to accomplish its purpose and to transform your life, you must be willing to accept its authority in your life. And again, this is where the difference between just a churchgoer and a disciple comes into play. If you desire to become a disciple of Christ, the Bible must become your authoritative standard for living. You would be surprised how many people who call themselves Christians, but they reject the Bible. It must become the compass you rely on for direction. It must be the counsel for making decisions. It must be your code of conduct for living and your benchmark for evaluating everything in life. It must become your first and your last word. If you're acting in a certain way, that is contrary or contradictory to God's word, you must be willing to repent and come under its authority. You may not even like it or fully agree with it, but that's not the point. Either God's word is authoritative in your life or it's not. And lastly, many of our troubles come because we pick and choose and base our choices on unreliable authorities, such as culture, Well, everyone else is doing it, such as tradition. Well, we've always done it this way. Maybe it's reason. Well, it just seemed logical. Or maybe it's emotion. Ah, it just felt right. No. What we need is a standard that is solid and true, that doesn't change. And that's the word of God. So the question that you must deal with is the will of Scripture in your life. Is it your authority? Is it the lens in which you view everything in life? Is it the place you go when you don't know where else to look? That's where you will begin to start finding your purpose. 
because our purpose comes from the purpose maker and the purpose giver. Many this morning, you might have been wandering around aimlessly for 50, 60 years of your life, wondering what your purpose is. Your purpose is to glorify God. And whatever you do is to glorify God. Again, let us not get confused with our purpose and our calling. Many of us here are called to different things, but our purpose collectively is to glorify God. And you might can even say our purpose as a church is rooted in Micah 6, 8. Then you might can say the purpose is the whole church is rooted in the Great Commission. But our purpose as individuals is to glorify God. Let's go to prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you have been glorified this morning. And I pray that if there's anything that I said, Lord, that has not been pleasing in your sight, Lord, that grace would be extended unto me, that you would convict me, and Holy Spirit, that you would lead me in a direction to repent from it, Lord, and to change my ways. And I pray for the people online this morning, the people in this room, Lord, that their purpose may be found in you. Lord, that they would seek you out, that they would seek out a relationship with you, and they can truly become fulfilled in life. They could put down the bottle of alcohol, whatever the prescription drug pills. Maybe it's a self-help book. Maybe it's not even a drug or a book. Maybe it's a faulty worldview or perspective. But Lord, whatever they find their purpose in that is not rooted in you and in glorifying you, but that they will repent, up, repent from it and return back to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you all for being here this morning. Uh, offering will be on your way out the doors, I believe. Uh, so go in the grace and peace of Christ, and we will see you next week.